We're in our seventh series, seventh session, seventh, seventh lesson in our series through covenant theology. And just to recap why we're doing this and where we've come from. Uh, uh-oh, that's not right, as usual. There we go. Why are we studying covenant theology? We have spent the last six weeks talking about how it is God's framework for redemption. Covenant is the way that God reveals Himself to us. Covenant is the way that God relates to us. And covenant theology, and the study of it, really opens up, it should be opened right there, opens up the immensity of God's plan for redemption. And it enables us to properly understand Scripture, particularly how the Old Testament is related to the New Testament. To understand the Gospel, why it is that Jesus came and lived and died for our sins. And of course, our salvation, how we're swept up into this great plan of redemption. Covenant theology, I believe, I've I've been trying to make the argument that covenant theology is the key, the framework to understanding these things. When we study the covenants, these things come alive as we see the big picture plan of God's uh, redemption. Last week, we talked about the covenant of redemption. What I argued was that the covenant of redemption is an eternal covenant agreement within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, for the purpose of redeeming the elect. And I argue that from this covenant flow all other biblical covenants. The Scriptures, if we examine the relationship between the members of the Trinity, the conversations between the Father and the Son, the statements about the Spirit, when we examine those things, you know, we don't, we don't find the term covenant of redemption in Scripture. We don't find a passage that says, okay, now, this is a covenant of redemption and this is what it means. But when we examine the relationships and the language that's spoken um, between the Godhead, we see that there was a covenant that was made before the world was created. And that God purposed to save a people and to send the Son in this covenant. And the Spirit promised to bless the work of the Son. And this is key for understanding our salvation, how it originated in the mind of God, to put it that way, and how the covenants in history, the biblical covenants, are an outworking of this one covenant of redemption. So we looked at a number of passages that reveal to us where this covenant is found, and we concluded by saying, This covenant teaches us about our God, His nature as a covenant-making God, His plan, His wisdom, His sovereignty. It teaches us about our salvation, and ultimately it grants us exceedingly great comfort and assurance. God's plan of redemption, uh, our salvation is an outworking of His eternal plan. He will finish what He started in us. And so that is the covenant of redemption. Moving on from this today, I told you at the end of last week we're going to be moving on to the covenant of grace, but I've decided to go another route instead. Today we're going to look at the covenant of works. 
That really kind of sets the stage for the covenant of grace. I thought it would be better to talk about this one first. And so that's what we're going to be covering today. And let me just tell you, I am beside myself because I only have, well, now 30 minutes to talk about the covenant of works. This is a massive subject. It is one of the most important doctrines in all of Scripture. I'm just going to say it right now. It is one of the most important doctrines in all of Scripture. And the sad thing is, most people, Christians, probably have never heard of it and don't know what it is and why it's important. And so it's like, ah, I only get 30, 40 minutes to talk about this. Uh, So we are really going to do a very brief overview. Um, Hopefully... In the coming weeks, if you have questions about that, um, in fact, here are the cards and pencils, pens. If you have questions that you want to write down, if we don't have time to get to, I promise I'll get to them eventually. But we're going to do a brief overview of the Covenant of Works, what it is, where it's taught, why it matters. And I want to talk briefly, it's relation to the Covenant of Redemption, where we came from last week. It's relation to the covenant of grace, where we're going next week, and it's relation to the historical covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, where we're going in the weeks ahead. So that's our agenda today. All right, so the covenant of works. What is it? Where is it taught? Why do we care? I want to begin with a question. Think about it this way. Why did Jesus have to come and die for us and for our salvation? It's a pretty simple question, right? Probably, um, you're probably thinking, well, duh, there's a lot of reasons, right? Mark? Yes, because we broke the covenant of works. That's absolutely where I'm going. What gave you the uh, first clue there, Mark? (laughs) The covenant of works. (laughs) More specifically, let me ask it this way. And again, that Mark answered correctly, and that's where we're going. But I want you to think through it. What necessitated, thank you. The earthly work of Christ. Why did Jesus have to live a full life in addition to dying for our sins? See, most people, and again, I don't want to speak condescendingly, that's not what I'm trying to do, nor am I trying to broad brush, broad brush here, but majority of Christians, if you ask them, you know, how are we saved? Well, Jesus died for my sins. Um, a lot of people in our culture, Christian culture don't have an understanding of the obedience of Christ. And, you know, I guess the, the notion is, well, we sinned, we need somebody to take that punishment. That's why Jesus came and died. But 
What about it? Think about it this way. Do you remember the story in, in uh, the early chapters of Matthew where Herod was um, tricked by the wise men? He wanted to know where this king was. Jesus fled to Egypt. Um, well, his Mary and Joseph did. Jesus was an infant. And what did Herod do in response? Do you guys remember? He took a sword and they killed all the males in Jerusalem under the age of three. Right? Why did Jesus not just die as an infant baby at the hand of Herod by the sword? Why did he have to live 33 years? If all we need is our sins forgiven... Well, these answers are ultimately found in the book of Genesis, and they're ultimately found in the covenant of works. That's my argument. So as we begin here, and everybody get that? You see where I'm going? The covenant of works, the opening chapters of Genesis reveal to us, essentially, what is needed for our salvation. So remember the framework analogy here. We have this house, and for the purposes of this illustration, this house is the gospel. All right? That's a gospel house right there. It's beautiful, it's finished, except for the yard, maybe. It looks pretty much move-in ready. But here we have, you know, something that's upholding the house, something that is behind that you can't really see. And what I'm arguing here is that This is the framework. There's a solid foundation that supports the house and, of course, the structure as well that is important, not only important, but necessary for the house. But you don't see all this when you're looking at the beautiful house. That's kind of the working analogy here I want to take regarding the gospel and the covenant of works. We see the gospel in all its beauty, but when we look a little bit below the surface, we see that there is a framework upholding that gospel and is important to it and is necessary to it. And that's what I want to argue about the covenant of works. It is the underpinning of specifically Genesis 1-3, through is the underpinning of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing when you can see the gospel in Genesis 1-3. through So, what I'm arguing is that Genesis 1-3 through forms the essential foundation and structure of the gospel. It explains creation, how God originally made all things good, So in this, it also teaches us about sin, why things right now are not good. It teaches us about this fallen world, why there is a curse, why everyone is born into this. It teaches us about the need for our redemption. Most specifically for our purposes... It reveals to us why we are held accountable for Adam's sin. 
Why am I being punished? Why do I have a curse upon me because of what some man did thousands of years ago? And of course, it reveals as well why Christ's earthly work and sacrificial death were necessary for our salvation. Everyone tracking with me here? Any questions? Comments? So what is the covenant of works? That's what I want to answer right now. What is the covenant of works? Essentially, again, very broad. We're going to be very broad. We're going to just give the basics here of a very intricate issue. But in the beginning, God entered into a covenant with the human race. That's the covenant of works. In fact, I'm arguing in a sense that we were created in covenant. In a sense, you've got to be careful with those definitions, but we were created in covenant. The relationship between God and Adam in the garden was covenantal in nature. Now, I put this bold question mark here because I want to throw it back at you. How can we say this? Remember what we talked about two weeks ago, Trent? It was conditional, yes, but uh, maybe uh, let me be more specific. How can we, if we look at the relationship between God and Adam, on what basis can we call it covenantal, since the word covenant isn't used? Sophie, you're the one actually who answered this a few weeks ago. It had something to do with a certain quacking animal. Does anybody remember? Yes. If it looks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, if it acts like a duck, it's a duck. Just to remind you, just because we don't see the word covenant right there doesn't mean that a covenant relationship was not present. And I defended that two weeks ago from the, from the covenant with David and all of that. But when we look at the relationship between God and Adam we begin to see, oh, this isn't just a normal, everyday relationship. This is a covenantal relationship. Thus, because it was a covenant, Adam represented the entire human race, and he acted in their place. This is the way that God made, set up the world at creation. There is a covenant relationship and in Adam was represented all of humanity he was a federal head that's the theological term for the one who acts on behalf of another he acted in our place he represented us in his obedience or disobedience That's the big picture of the covenant of works, essentially. Let's narrow that down a little bit. This covenantal relationship, if we look at this relationship, we realize that there are conditions present in this Adam-God relationship. 
Adam was called to perfect obedience. We'll consider that more in a moment. Alongside this condition of obedience was a promise and a threat. Again, covenantal language here. That's what we find in all of the covenants. Promise, life for obedience. And what I'm going to argue is that not just physical life, but had Adam obeyed, he would have obtained eschatological life. Not just forever living in the garden, but eternal life in the presence of God, consummated life, heaven. A confirmed life from which he could never fall again, which is what we are given through Christ in the new creation. We will never be able to fall in, in, from our state of righteousness after the last day. If he would have obeyed, this is what he would have obtained. But there was a curse to this as well, or I should say a threat. There was death for disobedience. And not only bodily death, not only spiritual death, but an eschatological death, eschatological, in time forever, permanent death, everlasting punishment. Now, I know I'm not, I don't, we don't have time to defend these things. This is pretty obvious, right? And really, that's a large part in how we can affirm this, is because the implication, the flip side of this, is this. Um, so I'm not going to go into details to defend this. So if you have any questions, ask them now. But um, this is what we see in the covenant of works. And again, it's from making careful theological distinctions. John? That's right. Yes. And that's the basic premise of the covenant of works. Heaven must be earned. Um, well, yeah, we can't earn it personally. <laughs> uh, because of Adam's fall. And I'm going to get into that more in just a minute, a minute what it means to be made in the image of God. But uh, that's good, Romans 6. Questions here before we move on? I'm glad you all agree with me. This is such a controversial topic, and you are all on my side. This is wonderful. So let's look at a few passages from Genesis to try to break down some of this. All right? Just to justify some of this. If you have your Bible, grab it, and uh, I'll have a few of you read. Somebody please read Genesis 1.27. And I put it up on the board, so I guess you could read it from the board if you'd like. Either one, but Genesis one twenty-seven. Loud and clear, I can't hear you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Yes, very foundational, thank you, Mark. Very foundational passage, which under, reveals to us who we are. Why we are distinct from the animals. What is special about mankind. 
God created male and female in the image of God. What does that mean? In one sense, it means we have knowledge and the law written on our hearts. Even the staunchest atheist reflects how justice and love and even at times mercy, things that are attributes of God are evident on his heart and he acts those out in his life. He has a sense of logic and justice and righteousness and right and wrong. Everyone has this image of God, although defaced because of sin, evident in their heart and in their lives. That's one sense of it. But another sense of being made in the image of God is that this bestowed upon man certain obligations to be like God. Being made in the image of God entails covenantal obligations in relationship. Now, and this is true not just for Adam, but for you as well. There is an obligation of being bestowed with this gift of being made in the image of God. In this, Adam was called to imitate his Creator. And the question posed under his trial is, would Adam live up to this image or deface it? If you were going to have the image of Almighty God given to you, you can't just live however you want and do whatever you want to do. That is, in a sense, lack of a better term, a blessing and an obligation. You know, it's like a soldier who puts on a uniform. And says, I've got to respect this uniform. Which is why, like, even in the armed forces nowadays, um, um, adultery, for example, by enlisted men, that that could get you court-martialed and kicked out of the military. That has punishment. Even though it has nothing to do with what they're doing in fighting wars and being a soldier... They have to live up to the obligations of wearing that uniform. There's something required of them. And a thousand times more with man, you and me, being made in this image of God. Are you going to represent that image that you've been given or are you going to deface it and act as if Maybe not act as if, but deface it by misrepresenting who God is. And that's what sin is. When we sin, when we break God's law, here is an image of God doing something that is contrary to God's nature. And that's why one reason why it's so evil. Because it's a perversion of the image of God. It is representing to everyone else in this world 
that God is like an adulterer or a liar or a murderer or one who speaks harshly to people or one who disobeys his parents, doesn't submit to authority. Or it represents that God is like a coveter or a, a thief. See, when we sin, we represent, we, we, whether we like it or not, we represent God and we communicate something about who He is. And so that's why sin is so evil, because it defaces this image of God. But my argument here, to circle back around, is that this is the covenantal obligation that Adam had. It's part of the covenant to represent faithfully who God really is. Moving quickly, another passage from Genesis Somebody want to read that loud and clear, 127? So I don't have to read everything? What about 2.15? And one more. 2.3. These are commands, imperatives, obligations that God gave to man in creation before sin entered the world. And I want you to notice, He gave these commandments that mimic, Adam was called to mimic his Creator. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's what God did in creation. He filled the earth. He caused fruit to come from the ground, right? Subdue it and have dominion. That's what God did, particularly when He hovered over the face of the waters. And there's that phrase that the, 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 the mass was without form and void. Here is chaos. God subdued it and created something beautiful. This world out of it. That's what man is called to do. His creation to mimic his God. And then we have this keep and work and keep the garden. This really ties into the temple. This these words work and keep. The very same words are used of the priestly duties in the temple. And we know that the Garden of Eden was the temple, the original temple, the dwelling place of God. What Adam was called to do was to cultivate that garden and extend it so that it covered the entire globe. His priestly duties, part of his priestly duties, were keeping evil out of the garden and judging any evil that he came in contact with. Well, unfortunately, the serpent slithered in and instead of judging and condemning and casting the serpent out, he listened to the serpent. He allowed his wife to listen to the serpent Evil entered this and stained this world, and now instead of evil being cast out, Adam's cast out. No unholy thing can dwell in the temple of God. And then we have this consummation of God's work. So God was fruitful and multiplied and filled and subdued and, and had dominion over the earth, but what did he do at the end? He rested. He rested. Kind of a consummated, sit back and watch your cake rise type of consummated taking the seat on the throne now. 
Doesn't mean he took a nap. He, he looked at his work. It is good. I'm going to sit back and rule over it now. And that's what Adam was called to obtain. We know that the Sabbath rest and throughout Scripture is revealed as, essentially, heaven. Our Sabbath rest is in heaven. That's our consummated rest. Adam was to work, fulfill the obligations of his trial, and enter into God's eternal eschatological rest as the victor, as God himself had done. That's why Genesis 1 through 3 lays out the creation as God, as a workman, getting up in the morning, getting his hands dirty, finishing his day and declaring at the end, in the evening, in the morning, it was the third day or what, whatever, and then resting on the seventh. That is the pattern. That's the creation account, among other reasons, is revealed in that way to teach us how we are called to mimic God. God presents himself as that workman. We are to be that workman. And Adam was called to obtain that Sabbath rest. That's the reward that was held out to him in the covenant of works. I've got to move quickly. A few other passages of Scripture. 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the true tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the threat in the case of Adam's disobedience, it's death. And not only for him, but for all of humanity. This is a covenantal threat that's held out. We just taught, looked at the, uh, at the promises or the obligations, the stipulations. Here is the threat. Then there's this interesting statement after the fall. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. I don't have time to break that down, but this is after he ate, he was aware of his shame. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, it goes on to explain how the Lord put an angel there with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. But just think about that. If Adam would have eaten the tree of life, he would have lived forever. Of course, it's a great mercy that God put an angel with a sword there because if Adam, as a sinner, would have eaten of the tree of life, he would have been forever confirmed in his sin. But think of the implications of this. This is the reward, life forever, and it's implied by the way of the tree of life. This is why we can say that if Adam would have obeyed, he would have been grant, excuse me, granted to eat of this tree and have obtained eschatological, confirmed, eternal life. Uh, if you have your Bibles, can I get three people to look up these three verses and read them real quickly? Revelation 2, 7, Revelation 22, 1 and 2, Revelation 22, 14. Revelation 2, 7, if you have it, just read it. Okay. 
Jesus making a promise to one of the churches in those opening chapters of Revelation, saying, if you're faithful, if you endure, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That tree shows up again. Interesting, huh? Revelation 22. Tree of Life appears again in John's description of the eternal, consummated heaven, kingdom of God. Who's got the last one, 2214? Trent? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Again, the righteous have the right to eat of the tree of life. My point is that this is a theme in Scripture. And we can see that tree of life is the center, essentially, in some respect, the center of eternal consummated kingdom of God. And as it appears in Genesis, that's how we can make, one of the reasons we can make the deduction that Adam was to obey and be given this tree. If he would have obeyed, he would have lived forever. Now, of course, I'm going to make the argument that Christ obeyed. And because Christ obeyed, Because Jesus Christ won the right to eat of the tree, He gives that to us in the Gospel. The big picture of this is that the promise of the Gospel, new life, resurrected bodies, eternal life, isn't promising us something new. It's promising what God intended to give mankind from the very beginning. It's woven into His creation of Adam. The Gospel is about attaining the original destiny of the human race. That's what it's about. And that's what we see in the creation of Adam. I've got to move quickly. Conclusion from Genesis. What... You know, a brief look, what can we conclude in 30 minutes? (laughs) Making us in the image of God entailed obligations to live up to that image. The commands of God to Adam mirrored this as well. Adam was to mimic his Creator and obtain the rest that his Creator obtained by resting on the seventh day after seventh day after his work was completed, which, by the way, you may wonder, well, why is the Sabbath continuing in our age? Well, because it predated the law. It's not part of the Mosaic law; it's part of creation. And why then has it been changed to the first day instead of the seventh day? Because Adam was to work and then obtain; he lost that. And because of Christ, now we rest first and then work on the basis of that reward already being being completed. Does that make sense? We don't work for our salvation to obtain rest. We've given that rest. And on the basis of that rest, then we go out and work. 
It's a complete reversal because Christ has accomplished it for us. And of course, He rose on the first day of the week as well. There are blessings and cursings in this relationship. There are signs and seals of the covenant. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam is a federal head acting on behalf of others. All of this, this is the quacking duck here that tells us there's a covenant. Uh, We've got five minutes, so I'm going to really quickly try to get to some questions. Are there any other scriptures besides Genesis? Yes, there's a number of them. I'm just going to reference two quickly. Quickly. Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. This is talking about Israel. They dealt faithlessly with me. God tells Israel, like Adam, you have transgressed the covenant. There's a lot of dispute about whether this is referring to Adam the man or Adam the city. Um, I believe clearly it's referring to both, but most specifically to Adam the man. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. See the parallel here? Between Adam and Christ, they are two sides of the same coin. There's disobedience that led to curse and obedience that led to reward. Not only for himself, but for his people, this only makes sense in a covenantal context. What does this mean? Why does it matter? This creation arrangement, this is important, is calling for a righteous and holy human servant to fulfill the stipulations of God's law and the reality of being made in God's image. This arrangement of how God made man is calling for, it begs for, a holy human servant to do this and mimic God. Thus properly glorifying God. An earthly human, and I use this phrase very, very carefully, a little God. A little representation of the archetype of God Himself. A little human earthly representative that reflects God's glory by obeying and mimicking His Creator. At creation, Adam was neither sinful nor permanently confirmed and righteous. He was without sin, but he wasn't confirmed. That means he had the possibility of falling from that. He was on trial. Would he follow his covenant Lord's pattern of working, subduing, reigning, and resting? Or would he go his own way and seek his own good apart from God's word? Because he knew better. Again, I'm moving quickly because we're out of time. But do you see the Adam-Christ parallel here? Because of sin, Adam plunged all his people into eternal death. One man's actions is imputed to the entire human race. A covenantal act, a covenantal curse, right? His sin is imputed to us. 
That's why we are born sinners. Not just because we're physically attached to Adam through natural generation, but because God imputes the guilt and sin of His action to the entire race. The flip side of this though, the good news, because of His obedience, Christ redeemed all of His people to eternal life. One man's actions, his obedience to the law, is imputed to all his people, those who believe. And of course, the flip side of that as well is that our sins are uh, borne by him as well. The covenant of works then gives us the context in which to understand the person and the work of Christ. It explains why humanity is naturally inclined towards works righteousness We have it ingrained in us that if we obey, we receive a reward. We have it ingrained in us, paganism, human virtue, that God will be good to us if we obey. That's why so many people think that they're going to be okay at the last day. Well, if you weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds, you know why they think that instinctively? It's because they're in covenant with God. We were created to earn heaven by our good works. And that is still written on our hearts. And that's why man responds as he does. It also explains why salvation is permanently and entirely out of our hands. Man had free will under salvation once. But he lost it. Now those who are saved must be saved by God Himself. And so if you deny the covenant works, you kind of set everyone up as little Adams again. As if we're all given a second chance, we're all on probation again, we all can either accept God's Word or reject it and turn away, and we have complete freedom in doing this. That's not how, because of Adam, that's not how things are. It's out of our control. Which is why God's sovereign, electing, predestinating grace is necessary if we are to be saved. The conclusion here then. Why did Jesus have to live a full life in addition to dying on the cross? You see that answer now? You see that answer to... Does it help you understand when things like when Jesus was baptized... John the Baptist said, what? I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Remember how Jesus responded? It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to obey every letter of the law to the fullest extent. He had to live a full life of perfect obedience to obey where Adam failed, to obey the covenant of works that Adam broke. And that's why he's thrown out into the wilderness and Satan slithers up again, just like it's a whole replay of what happened in Eden. And Satan challenges God's Word. Has God really said? He he tries to get him to... uh, test God. He tries to get Jesus uh, to, to want 
all the things of this world apart from God's Word. It's a replay of what's going on, what went on in, in the garden. And thus, the covenant of works thus sets the stage for a righteous servant, a second Adam to come, the imputation of that obedience to us, justification by faith alone, the law-gospel distinction in sanctification, in the sense that there is a covenant of works, that the covenant of grace, which is the opposite of that. We do not save ourselves by obedience. We do not maintain our salvation by obedience. It's all based upon Christ alone. And it explains to us as well as we're going to go what's going on with the Mosaic Covenant in Israel. Because what you find in Israel is a replay of what happened with Adam. And that's why we would identify the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of works. God is resetting up and showing Israel, hey, um, you think you would obey if you were in Adam's position? Well, let's try that again. And it's laying the groundwork for Christ to come. We've got one minute. I gave you a lot. But the end thing is this is so important because if you throw out the cover of works, you really open yourself up to misunderstanding the gospel, the work of Christ, justification by faith alone. And that's why I believe it is one of the most important doctrines, not only just for understanding the gospel, but for understanding what is going on in Scripture from Genesis all the way up to where Matthew, uh, Jesus appears in Matthew. It's all of that preparation framework gives us the context to see Christ didn't come in a vacuum. He didn't just, His justification, His work doesn't just hang in thin air. It's supported and necessary because of everything we see in Genesis. Questions, comments? Luke. Is there a short answer to the question of how did nakedness relate to God's image? And why was it okay before and not okay after? I haven't even studied it, so I just... Yeah. Um, to give you the short answer of that, I would say that um, Adam's nakedness represented his um, immaturity, his childishness. And part of his commission was to subdue the earth, be fruitful, multiply. And with that would have come civilization and clothing. And it, it just represented his childish innocence. I don't think there's anything special about it. I don't think he would have stayed naked either. So, but now the, after sin, the shame as well necessary, 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 necessitated. I knew I would get it. Good thing I'm not preaching today. Uh, or inherently righteous. That's what I'm saying. That's my belief. There's a lot of different opinions on that. Yeah. Questions? Comments? John? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's certainly another side of the equation in the sense of Jesus is speaking of those who are oppressed in sin, those who are in bondage. 
and he came to liberate them. Um, scripture doesn't speak of the coming of Christ and his work only exclusively in terms of the covenant of works, but it does in Romans 5. In other passages, it speaks of like Matthew one twenty one. He will save his people from his sins. Um, there's, you know, it's like a diamond. You can look at it from so many different ways and it remains beautiful. Cody. He did. He denied the covenant of works, yes. Men like, uh, for example, like John Piper today also, uh, they say, well, man can never earn anything by God and, and we don't deserve anything and Adam was called to faith. I think that ultimately blurs the distinction between law and gospel and blurs the gospel and why Jesus had to come and live and die. Uh, he, he, I don't remember. I believe he did uh, affirm some sort of covenant of creation, but it certainly was not a covenant of work. It was a covenant of grace, I believe, is what he said. So I, I would be first to say there are gracious elements. God didn't have to make man in his own image. He didn't have to set him in a garden and bless him and all of these things. There's all sorts of grace in there, but the terms of the covenant, whether it would be obeyed whether it be broken or remain faithful that base was based upon adam's obedience and that's why i think it's most helpful to call it a covenant of works although people call it a covenant of adam covenant of creation all sorts of things but covenant of works really brings out the fact that it could be broken by adam's disobedience and it was all right we've we've yeah we definitely have it. let's close in prayer